So I wanted to conclude this repentance series, part seven, and you might immediately think, wait a minute, repentance, I thought we did all that. I mean, six weeks, come on. Isn't it time to do something else now? Well, I had to do seven parts. I mean, if we're talking about real and complete repentance, what does the biblical number seven symbolize? Completion. So we had to, we had to, I had to make all this stuff up. I'm just kidding. I sort of had a, I sort of had a plan with this thing, but um, there is one consideration that we have to tie this thing off with. We've done a lot of work. I've actually gotten some really, really good feedback over the last six weeks from a lot of people who have listened and tuned in, and I appreciate that. That's a nice gift to your rabbi because, you know, when you do this for a living, the only real way you know if anything you're saying is bearing fruit is to hear from the people that you're talking to. So I appreciate that. But we've, we've, I got some good feedback, so thank you for that. But the last question, you know, really, now that we've done this work, hopefully, where do we go from here? What's next? I mean, yeah, we've talked all about this. What's the path ahead? What do we do with all that we've learned? What to expect? And I'll tell you this way. It is the struggle of the horse and rider, which is why we butchered that song for you this morning when we played horse and rider. Wanted that to be fresh in your mind. The horse and rider. When the sages of Israel looked for an image that would capture the internal struggle that occurs between humanity, human, and and human inclination, uh, they settled on one, one that sticks particularly in my mind, and it is the horse and rider. The picture of the human, the rider, and the human condition, the horse. And that is the tension between what we feel like doing, what we, what we want to do, what we know we need to do, and what we feel like doing. In other words, I need to lose 15 pounds. I feel like eating cheesecake. I need to do this, but I feel like doing that. Rider and horse, I want to make a difference with my life, but I feel like doing just the bare minimum and getting by. I want to achieve the greatness of who God made me to be, but I feel like being completely average and not being struggled, not being challenged at all. I want growth, but I feel like comfort. And that struggle of horse and rider, well, it has a particular resonance for me, and I want to share a little story with you. Rio Dosa, New Mexico. Anybody ever been? It's a beautiful place. If you're from Lubbock, Texas, you definitely went to Rio Dosa. And I lived in Rio Dosa. I mean, I I lived in Lubbock, but we went to Rio Dosa, New Mexico. It was probably 1982. I was 10, 11 years old. I don't know. I was invited by my friend's family to go. It's a beautiful mountain ski town in New Mexico. But in the, in the, when it's not snowing, it's still beautiful and mountainous. And you can do all kinds of things like riding horses, which is one of the things that my friend's family did. And so I thought, I've never done that. So that'll be fun. Let's ride horses. So we get to the stable or whatever it's called, the corral, and we, we get all of our horses. And, you know, horses are pretty big. I had not ridden one before. I was 10 or 11 years old. They're pretty intimidating to get on this huge beast. 
But I, was, I had no fear because the instructor had told me everything I needed to know. All the right words to say, you know, the things to do, the reins and do all the things. So I, I, I had this. I knew that I, I had the right things. And so we, we set out and we're riding and gradually, you know, going up. It's not like Mount Everest, but it's an elevation for sure. So we're gradually winding and going up and it's beautiful. And my friends are, you know, and their parents, they're a little ahead of me, but they're, they're doing their thing and I'm doing mine. And we crossed another hill and then there are no more hills because now it goes down because what comes up must go down, right? And so the horse and I are cresting this hill and looking around and it's just beautiful up there, even for a 10-year-old. And all of a sudden, as we're heading down the mountain, my horse just absolutely takes off. (laughs) Not trotting, not a brisk walk, running, galloping, down this mountain with me on the back of it and no one's around because I don't know where they are. And so all of a sudden, here's this horse and this little kid going down this mountain. I'm like, whoa, 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 stop, no, help, wah! And the horse would not stop. No matter what words I used or feet I kicked or prayed or whatever would happen, the horse was galloping down the hill. And I'm going, help me, help me, help me, help me. (laughs) Saying all the right words, doing the right things, he keeps running. And I have a decision to make at this point. Because I look down the hill about 250 yards away and there is a highway at the end of the path. And I'm seeing it, it's all happening in, it seems like hours, but it's seconds of time. And I see the cars are going by and I'm like, oh my God, I'm gonna die. So I have a decision, jump or die. That's the decision that lay before me at 10 years old. I'm thinking, this horse, it must have had some kind of, I don't know, mental brain breakdown or something. Or it's like, it's done. It said, I'm not taking any more people up and down these mountains. I am going to run into the middle of the road. This is my kamikaze, kamikaze horse. And I said, I'm not doing it. So I jumped off the side of the horse, running down the mountain. And you could imagine what it looked like as I hit the ground and roll and slide and I'm rolling down the hill. I'm not sure how I didn't die in that part of the process, but I I came to as the horse is, you know, going, and I stand up and I look at what is going to be the most gruesome end to this horse as it runs into the middle of the highway. 
And I'm like, and all of a sudden, just at the edge of the highway, the horse stops and turns left. Now I wanted to kill the horse. He didn't kill himself, but I wanted to. So I continued down the hill. And I get to the place where he is, and from my high vantage point on the back of the horse, where he stopped and turned, I could not see from there that there was another path that turned to the left just before the road. And as I hobbled my way to the path and I turn and I look, about 150 yards that way is the stable where we started. And the horse is chomping on hay or whatever stupid things stupid horses eat, <laughs> resting comfortably in the stable where the whole thing started. And I continue to hobble in. My knees are bleeding. There are holes in my jeans. It was 1983. My Air Jordans were scuffed. Original, I might add. <laughs> and I walk, and there's my friend's dad. What happened to you? Well, I almost died. That's what happened to me. I jumped off this stupid horse because it was about to run me into the highway. And I don't remember exactly if he laughed, but I think he did, and it wasn't funny. He said, oh, Tammy, didn't they tell you? When a horse senses home, when a horse gets close to home, they just go, buddy. They know where they are. They just... They just want to get back to the stable. Didn't anybody tell you that? No! No one told me that. Look at my knees, bloody knees. And he's like, ah, sorry. No one told me. But I'm telling you. Because that is relevant to what's next after the end of the high holidays. And after the journey and all of the work and everything that you've done up to this point, everything that culminated in confessions and decisions and dedications to be the person you know you should be and to take some action to become that person, awesome, incredible, you know what's next, you know what's going to happen next, an incredible amount of struggle. Yes. Oh, wait. No. The struggle of the horse and rider. The rider is your soul. The rider is your good. The rider is your God part, your good inclination, the part that yearns for better, for different. The horse is our body. It's our natural tendencies, our habits, our comfort zones. What feels natural? What, what feels good? And the question that we will be challenged with and the action that we will be challenged with is who's in control? Who's got the reins? The skilled rider leading the faithful, obedient stallion or the 10-year-old with his bloody knees hobbling back to the corral 
Because as soon as you commit, and I hope you have, to the things that we've discussed, to the things you want, the things you need to do for you and the better you in this world, as soon as your old you feels that restraint, feels those reins go on, that horse is running, buddy. Here's a great thing from uh, Rabbi Tversky. The Talmud presents an interesting debate between Rav Yehuda Hanasi, the compiler of the Mishnah, and, and Antonin, which might have been Marcus Aurelius. I don't know. But the question was, when does the Yetzer Hara, the evil inclination, enter a human being? Rabbi Yehuda said, it happens right at the moment of conception. But Antonin rebutted, that cannot be. If the fetus had a Yetzer Hara, if the fetus had a, a natural inclination, it would kick its way out of the mother's womb. Therefore, it must be that the Yetzer Hara enters at the moment of birth. The Talmud states that Rabbi Yehuda conceded to Antonine. Why would the Yetzer Hara cause the fetus to kick its way out of the womb? The womb is this idyllic existence. All its needs are met. The fetus has no idea that there are pleasures in the world that might entice him. Furthermore, leaving the womb prematurely, prematurely would mean certain death. Why would the Yetzer Hara prefer that? The 19th century Jewish ethicists of the Musar movement gave that answer. The primary motivation of the Yetzer Hara is not, as generally assumed, the pursuit of pleasure, but the absence of restraint. It wants to be free of all restraint. And although the Yetzer Hara prefers death to being confined and restricted in any way, if the fetus had a Yetzer Hara, it would kick its way out of the womb even to certain death rather than have this existence. We all have a Yetzer Hara. It's an important, it is important that we understand what its drive is. It desires to reject all authority, to not tolerate any restrictions on our behavior, even when they are to our own benefit. The Yetzer Hara will push us to self-destruction just to be free of restraint. It's an interesting perspective. But if you've lived life, you know that that's true. And that is to say, what you tell your writer that you need to do or, or don't need to do, the more, the more committed the horse becomes to running home, to returning to comfort, to what comes naturally. And sometimes, friends, though we spend all the right time learning how to hold the reins and learning how to say the right words and do all the right things, sometimes the horse does not stop running. Sometimes even those reins cannot slow down the horse's desire to get back to the stable. And for some of you, that happened immediately. Right after Yom Kippur, it made absolutely no difference at all. It was like, I got to do this. Let me do it. It's over. Thank God I'll go back to doing what I want to do. But for other of you, there's a struggle there. And that's, that's the thing that happens. That's the, that's the struggle between horse and rider. So sometimes you got to realize that there, there is a solution to, to these types of things in your life. It's not a solution, it's a strategy. Here, here's a couple of them. Sometimes, in order to do the things that you must do, that you want to do, that you really need to do, you have to take incredibly uncomfortable action, which we already talked about. 
last week, I think it was, to realize that no matter what I do, I can't stop this horse. I can't stop this thing that's driving me to do this. And I'm going to die figuratively or literally, depending on the problem, because sometimes the horse might not stop at the end of the road. Sometimes the horse might run you right out into the middle of traffic because that's what it does. So sometimes you need to realize radical decision time. I got to jump off this thing. I have got to separate myself completely from this thing. That is what we talked about a little bit. Trust me, it's uncomfortable to jump off of a galloping horse down the side of a mountain. It hurt. It was uncomfortable, and I was a little embarrassed as I walked back to the thing looking like an idiot because I didn't know. But that's the point. I didn't know. And all I knew was that there was a decision to make. The unimaginably uncomfortable things to change outcomes. But in the process of incredibly uncomfortable action, you learn lessons. And that lesson has been ingrained in my head forever, obviously based on the level of detail I can recount it to you with. I will never forget what horses do when they want to go home. Ever. I learned about horses, I learned about reins, and I learned about control. But like I said, I didn't know where that horse was going. All I knew is I don't like the potential outcome that's right there in front of me. So I got to make a change. Desperate change. And to continue the metaphor, the rider in me completely separated from where that horse wanted to take me. And we have to do that. We have to change our identity. We have to become, not literally with a new social security card, You have to change. You have to take radical action. And when you have the same struggle, when the horse keeps taking you to the stable, change an environment, change your cues, change your triggers, take the reins, be in charge. And all of that is very hard to do. But there's a second strategy, and it's a little bit easier than jumping off. It's for when you've learned the hard lesson. Jumping off is a hard lesson. There's a simpler strategy. Musar teaches us ethics, Jewish ethics. It teaches us that we have a life curriculum, that we have a task or, or tasks that we've been given in this world to accomplish, and that you have midot, attributes, parts of you that you must develop that you must become strong in part of these things that make you who you are so that you can be the person you need to be. And here's the tricky part. If you refuse to get the lessons, they will keep coming at you. You will continue to be challenged in the same ways, in the same areas, with the same kind of people and the same struggles until you rise above it, until you learn the lesson so that you don't have to jump off the horse every time. With opportunities, we we develop the the mastery. Here's Here's a clear rephrase of that from James Clear. You keep ignoring feedback and life will keep teaching you the same lesson. You keep ignoring feedback and life will continue teaching you the same lesson. How many of you in this, wor- in this room, 
don't have to raise your hands. I'm just asking you to acknowledge it. How many of you find that sometimes in your life you continue to be challenged by the same kind of people and the same kind of situations and the same difficult reactions and the same inappropriate reactions or whatever? It's because you haven't mastered it yet. And that doesn't mean I can flip a switch and all of a sudden I'm perfect. But you learn the lessons. And as you do that, something happens. That when that horse begins to gallop away from you and take you where you know you don't want to go, you at least know where it's going. So what you do is you, what I couldn't do, is you hold on to the reins of this thing and you ride it down. You just hang on knowing what it's going to do because you've been here before. I don't have to bail off. I'm going to ride this inclination to the end point. And when we hit the bottom of that path, when I step down here and that horse comes to a stop, he's going that way. I'm going this way. I don't have to go back there just because the horse drives me back there. But I've made the trip. I've successfully endured the dangerous part of being tempted to jump off or run back to comfort. I go to the right. I had a person who came up to me after Rosh Hashanah and they said, thanks a lot. I said, for? For talking about cigarettes and convicting me and making me know that it's actually the time when I have to stop smoking cigarettes. I said, well, you're welcome. You're welcome. It was on air of Rosh Hashanah. I said, when was, your, when was your last cigarette? She said, well, it will be in about two hours when I determine to quit. I said, okay, excellent, great. And I haven't talked to her since then to know if she, if she became a person who does not smoke or if she's a person who's trying to quit. But I can tell you one thing I know. Sometime immediately after decision point, whenever it was, two hours later, three cigarettes later, I don't know, whenever that point came, her horse started running. Fast. Galloping down the mountain. That as soon as the decision was made to do something else, as soon as the restraint was put on, <laughs> go on. She had, to, she had to be prepared now to hold on tight as the skillful rider and know where the inclination would take her and be skillful with the words, whoa, stop, no, kick. And as a practical lesson for my old friend James Clear, this applies to the, the conclusion of this period of our lives and soul improvement. Make it easy. When you have a struggle, make it easy. Don't set unrealistic expectations for yourself. If you've got a problem you've been struggling with for years, sometimes overnight things happen and wow, amazing, I don't have that struggle anymore. But a lot of people have to work through different things, different things. And I told this lady, I said, listen, she's very genuine and very grateful. When her smoking horse gets to the bottom of the hill where it already has arrived and has gone back here to buy a pack of camels at the, at the corral, I'm not a person who smokes. 
but I am a person who chews Nicorette gum <laughs> because that's going to help me overcome this inclination. Be smart. Be realistic. Use things. Change your environment. Change your cues. Change your triggers. Be a person who holds the reins. And I know that's weird to be talking about Nicorette gum, but listen, it works. Be realistic and practical. Put some spurs on sometimes. Today, I see if I wore cowboy, if I wore, rode a horse, a horse, if I rode a horse now, you bet I'd have my boots on and my spurs, and I'd be kicking the D D stop. Sometimes you got to do that in your life. <laughs> but realize cigarettes are one thing. Of multiple discussions about cigarettes, it's great. But I'm talking about a lot more than physiological addictions. That's one thing. Talking about attitudes, responses, reactions, thought patterns. I don't often quote atheists, but even atheists have some great things to say. Dr. Uh, Harari from Hebrew University. Listen to this. The most important thing I realized was that the deepest source of my suffering was the patterns of my own mind. When I want something and it doesn't happen, my mind reacts by generating suffering. Suffering is not an objective condition in the outside world. It is a mental reaction generated by my own mind. Learning this is the first step towards ceasing to generate more suffering. It's a pattern of thought. We live our lives by patterns of thought. And part of that is your, your inclination, wanting to be in, involved in that and running you to where it wants you to go. Now, the sages sagaciously say beginnings are difficult. It is always difficult to get something started, especially if it's moving away from something that's comfortable to you. That's very, very difficult. But I think that's because beginnings, they, something new is implied, obviously. It implies change, uncertainty, and experience, uncharted territory, facing the expected, having courage, having resolve, commitment, persistence, passion to an outcome, seeing something happen. How many people in the world today look around and see a nation full of committed, dedicated people to being the best version of themselves? Not very many. Not very many, because it's difficult. And even getting that started is difficult. So, well, and, you know, as I was, I was completing this, I was thinking, is this, a, is this a teaching or is this a psychology class? And I was thinking there are probably people, uh, maybe new people even, who, who are thinking, now, what kind of rabbi is this guy here? He, he hasn't quoted any scripture. I don't even think he mentioned Jesus. He's talking about horses. Who does he think we are? Balaam? We're going to learn from a talking animal? <laughs> well, the truth of the matter is, Rhea Dosa and my bloody knees are not in the Bible. But every single thing I have told you over the last seven weeks are all over the Bible. The fact that God has equipped us to live life abundantly. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. We did that. That was a difficult beginning. Now the next step. Pressing on, Paul says, not looking back. I'm more than a conqueror. I can do all things through Messiah who strengthens me. And all the while knowing I will not leave you or forsake you. I'll be with you. All the while knowing that Yeshua said, I won't leave you alone. I'm going to give you a comforter. He's going to show you. 
All the while knowing that God instructed Joshua when things were difficult. Be strong, be courageous, careful to do all the things according to the law. And knowing, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What I'm doing is trying to make that a part of your life and your daily pattern of thought that you don't create in yourself a life that is not abundantly lived. Now, the last quick solution, and it is quick. Whatever the struggle, it doesn't have to be forever. Because here's the thing. Maybe you've jumped off some horses. Maybe you now know how to ride a horse down the mountain. And you've had to a lot. But I'll remind you of this thing. Horses are animals. You are a divinely breathed creation. That means you are the master. Sometimes you have to rest in the tension and hang on for the ride and go a different route. But you know what? Eventually, my friend won't need the gum anymore. Because ultimately, we are the master. And it is possible eventually, no matter what it is that you struggle with, that you train that horse to go down the mountain at your pace. And when you come to the bottom of the mountain, you and the horse go right because you are in charge. That takes time. It takes practice. That's the thing that we started doing with this. You recognize persistent training and the whole experience of your life changes because you're holding the reins. So Sukkot is the last hurrah, the cycle of sevens, the seventh month, the third week of seven. On the 21st, we conclude Sukkot, and we have Shemini Atzeret, this mysterious day where God wants us to hang out just a little bit longer. Like, this is the height of the mountain, man. This is good. There's no fasting. It's celebrating. It's partying. It's awesome. It's the height of the mountain. And that added bit of comfort of the sukkah, it's a strange dis- description, but it's, it's really an added bit of God's love and favor and presence, and we're, we're, we're sitting up here. But you know what? We, we, we have to come down at some point, down the mountain. And to get a hold of those reins, man, this is, this is the, di- the time that we use in these last days of God's holy calendar. Get a hold of the reins. This is life. It is practical. It is doable. Real repentance. It gives us every single thing we need to get started. To a large degree, as I've said all along, a good bit of it is up to you from there. God will go with you. Hold the reins. Shabbat shalom.